We're going to be about to read in Acts chapter 25 that no matter what situations we find ourselves in, that uh, God's grace can enable us to triumph in spirit and to arise to rejoice. Acts 25, verses 1 through 12. Now when Festus had come to the province, after three days he went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem. Then the high priest and the chief men of the Jews informed him against Paul, and they petitioned him, asking a favor against him that he would summon him to Jerusalem while they lay in ambush along the road to kill him. But Festus answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea and that he himself was going there shortly. Therefore, he said, let those who have authority among you go down with me and accuse this man to see if there is any fault in him. And when he had remained among them more than ten days, he went down to Caesarea and the next day, sitting on the judgment seat, he commanded Paul to be brought. When he had come... The Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood about and laid many serious complaints against Paul, which they could not prove, while he answered for himself, Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I offended in anything at all. But Festus, wanting to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and there be judged before me concerning these things? So Paul said, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you very well know. For if I am an offender or have committed anything deserving of death, I do not object to dying. But if there is nothing in these things of which these men accuse me, no one can deliver me to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with the council, answered, You have appealed to Caesar. To Caesar you shall go. Amen. Father, we thank you for this, your word. It is our desire to not only understand it, but, Father, to live it, to glorify you through it. We pray as we continue to worship with our responses to your scriptures that uh, you would be glorified. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. I think most of us are very frustrated when we see uh, principled men getting elected to Congress and not able to change much of anything at all. Uh, one aide to Ron Paul said that uh, he really had no idea um, where the 1,500-plus page bills uh, many times come from. Uh, they've tried to track some of these bills down. They know the congressman didn't write them, and his aides didn't write them, his staff didn't write them, so where in the world are they coming from? Uh, this disgusted aide said, The government printing office produces 200 pages of the congressional record each day at an estimated $300 per printed page. It is sitting on each legislator's desk the day following the proceedings, waiting to be read. No one ever reads it. Then there is the Federal Register, another daily production of 200-plus pages filled with new regulations from the bureaucracy, all having the force of law. About 60,000 pages of these regulations are published each year in three-column fine print, most of it incomprehensible. No one but lawyers read it. This is the law of the land. Congresses, Congress proposes, but the federal bureaucracy disposes. Is it any wonder that people with principles get eaten up and spit out by this system? In fact, there is uh, some people who have just decided they're not even going to get involved in politics. They've become so cynical uh, with the process that is out there. But you know what? 
you read the writings of the first century Jews and the Roman historians, you discover uh, nothing is new under the sun. Well, there are some things that are new. They didn't have photocopiers back then and probably didn't have 60,000 pages churning out each year. But the underlying bureaucracy that drives all of that is exactly the same back then as it is uh, today. It's always difficult to change deeply entrenched political machines. Now, we're going to be seeing today that God's hand is not too short that, that it cannot save. Even in a wretched system like was going on in Palestine in the year 59 through 60, I put 60 at the heading of my uh, chapter here, but it's either late 59 or beginning of uh, the year uh, 60. Now let me uh, remind you a little bit of, uh, about Felix. We're going to back up into the previous chapter, last verse. <clears throat> there were many reasons why Jews wanted to get Felix out of office at any cost. And they had tried and tried repeatedly to get Felix out and were unsuccessful. But finally, Felix's immorality, cruelty, and corruption were so outrageous that they were successful in getting him impeached. Now, you may not have realized you could get people impeached in ancient Rome, but you could. And uh, he got uh, impeached even though Felix was friends with Nero. He felt, Nero felt like uh, he needed to do something. Uh, just look at chapter 24, verse 27. But after two years, Porcius Festus succeeded Felix. Uh, Nero replaced Felix because things had gotten out of hand in Palestine. I doubt very much that Nero really cared about the immorality of Felix or the bribery or the graft or other forms of corrupt, corruption that were going on. What Nero cared about is that Palestine was falling apart and when the state pretends to be Messiah, that is one thing you cannot have happen. You've got to always be in control. That's the unforgivable sin, is losing control of the situation. Well, Felix uh, had indeed uh, lost control at uh, that time. His wanton slaughter of Jews in 60 AD was the final straw that made the Jews say, even if it means our death, even if it means the destruction of our land, we're going to go to war if he stays here. I mean, they were really, really upset uh, with Felix. And uh, there was rioting all over the place. His corruptions became so well uh, publicized that even to this day, you can read about it in the Roman Chronicles. Now, you would think that that would be the end of Felix's career. I mean, things had gotten pretty ugly for him. But you learn in the political world that Barney Franks and Ted Kennedys can somehow survive and bounce back after just about any kind of scandal that is out there. It's just an amazing thing. What happened here is that Felix's brother, Pallas, who was enormously wealthy, probably no more, uh, and nobody any more wealthy than Pallas, was able to buy Felix's safety. And he was so well connected with uh, the Palestinian power brokers that uh, he was able to get testimony on his side. And that's hinted at in the last phrase of that verse. And Felix, wanting to do the Jews a favor, left Paul bound. Now, everybody knows that Felix really didn't care for these Jewish leaders. So why is he wanting them to do, to do them a favor? And I think, uh, I'm convinced that the reason is he wants them to testify on his behalf. There's a lot of palm greasing that's going on between the lines here. And despite the criminal activities of this governor, no one seems to be able to touch him. It's very frustrating. You know what? <clears throat> God is still on his throne. And even invincible people like Felix uh, cannot escape from God's justice. Every person that's listed in this chapter 
Uh, Felix and his wife, uh, King Agrippa and Bernice, just happened to be vacationing in Pompeii when Mount Vesuvius erupted, and they were all killed. Okay, So God has the last word on that. But usually we don't have the patience to wait for God's judgments. And uh, the modern evangelical church is unwilling to pray for God's judgments. Uh, it's unfortunate. Uh, and they do want change, but they think the only way that we can get change is by playing the political games that the world plays. And it just will not work. Politics will never change politicians. Uh, only God's grace can change politics in a God-pleasing way. Now, there was change here. And it was change that the people were pretty excited about. If you read Josephus and some of the other people there, uh, they're breathing a sigh of relief. They're thinking, finally, we're going to get somebody in here who's conservative. At least we're getting Felix out of, uh, out of the way. But if you read the early Roman records, everything that we know about Festus, he seemed to be a fairly decent guy. And it looks like things are going to actually turn around. They finally got a conservative governor. Yay, yay, yay. Okay? But you've got to remember, it doesn't matter how conservative a politician may be, if he's an unbeliever, he is still under the sway of Satan. Okay? He can be manipulated by Satan. So don't put your trust in princes. Okay, that brings us up to chapter 25, verse 1. Now, when Festus had come to the province, after three days he went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem. Now, here is a man of action who makes no delay in trying to meet with and understand his constituents and make them feel like he's listening to their issues. Okay, he's being a very good uh, politician here. Unlike Felix, who was aloof, he's mixing with the grassroots. And it really did give the Jews hope that there would be a change indeed that was going to happen. Very much like the hope that people get when they elect a conservative senator or a conservative congressman into place and absolutely disgusted with the corruption, they say, this guy's going to fix things. He's going to solve things uh, in the Congress. Uh, Festus was at least new. He was not part of the corrupt system in Jerusalem. And so to Jews like Josephus, they say this looks like a, a pretty good change. But Festus has some of the same disadvantages that new congressmen have today. He's a new guy and he doesn't know how things work in Israel. So he has to get information in verse 2. But who's he going to get the information from? Well, it's the same rotten people who have been working with Felix. Uh, take a look at verses 2 and 3. Then the high priest and the chief men of the Jews informed him against Paul, and they petitioned him, asking a favor against him that he would summon him to Jerusalem. Now, there are two things that Festus is going to need to have in place if he's going to rule effectively. He's got to have information, and he's got to have political allies. But the problem is the corrupt politicians are the ones who have the information that he needs and they're the allies that he needs as well. It stinks, but that's the way it seems to work almost all of the time. Unless, of course, you want to you know, be a politician like Ron Paul who votes no all the time and ends up uh, you know, losing 40, 100, 400 and something to, to two. Uh, you're just not going to be effective. So even conservatives like Festus fall into this mess without wanting to. And the reason is that they want to be effective, and so they try to rub shoulders with the power brokers, and these power brokers are always asking for favors. Always asking for favors. Verse 3, asking for a favor against him, that is, against Paul, that he would summon him to Jerusalem. Now, Festus is not na uh, naive, 
uh, about politics in general, but he probably is naive about what their true agenda was. If you look at verse 3, their true unspoken agenda is given in the last phrase of verse 3. While they lay in ambush along the road to kill him. Now, I doubt very much that they told him that. Uh, this, even the way the New King James has it, that's their unspoken agenda that they're planning to do. But he's not a dummy. He's got to know they've got some, some kind of agenda uh, that's up their sleeves. But what he's convinced of is if he's going to clean up the incredible mess that Felix has left him and not have his own head on the platter, he's got to have help. He needs to regain control of this unruly province. And so we see that even administrators that are brand new, they're at a very great disadvantage. Just as no congressman can possibly learn the ropes overnight, no congressman can possibly read all of the legislation and all of the things that are out there and uh, 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 you know, can't even know how to plan every day without help. Festus is not going to be able to govern this nation without some help. But the problem is he can't totally trust the help that he's going to be receiving. And this is the same frustration that congressmen have over and over again in our nation. It's just another frustrating reality of politics. So, in verses 4 through 6, we see hints that Festus wants to do the right thing. He wants to think independently. Uh, he wants to be somewhat principled, a halfway decent guy. And in this case, he's in indicating, I'm not going to do any underhanded favors. Look at verses 4 and 5. But Festus answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea and that he himself was going there shortly. Therefore he said, let those who have authority among you go down with me and accuse this man to see if there is any fault in them, in him. Now, it would make him look weak if he, didn't, if he automatically gave jurisdiction to them. But he doesn't want them to think that he doesn't care about them and he's not going to play along with them either. So he makes a move that shows that he intends to be in control, but he's going to indicate to these guys that he does want to work with them. He probably feels pretty good about this, that um, it gives him kind of an illusion of controlling the situation. So what's happened? He's just dictated the place that they're going to meet. And then in verse 6, he makes it clear, I'm not going to be rushed into any decision on this. Uh, if you look at verse 6, he says... Um, and when he had remained among them more than ten days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day, sitting in the judgment seat, he commanded Paul uh, to be brought. So he's giving the illusion that uh, he is controlling the affairs under his jurisdiction. But he soon learns that these Jewish leaders know how to stack the deck in a way that's going to make it impossible for him to give justice and continue to be uh, survive as a, as a governor. Verse 7. When he had come, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood about, laid many serious complaints against Paul, which they could not uh, prove. Now, Festus is no dummy. He's been uh, around the block a few times. He knows exactly what is going on. And Paul says so in verse 10. If you look down at verse 10, he says, To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you very well know. Now, what Paul is indicating here is any Roman judge worth his salts already read the record in Jerusalem court and the record that's happened in Caesarea, he knows Paul is innocent. <coughs> but now you've got some power brokers who are complicating things. They're all over the place, bringing all of these accusations, indicating Festus is going to be in trouble if he doesn't go along with what they're having to say. 
But if he does go along with what they have to say, he could get impeached there too. They could hold that over him in years to come. And so he's really stuck in a difficult place. He wants to start off on a good foot with the power brokers, so he's got to figure out some way to please them, but he's got to figure out a way to do it without getting into trouble himself. And that's what ex- exactly what he tries to do. He knows that... Um, uh, uh, The Jews managed to get Felix out of office, and yet Felix somehow has managed to control the situation there. He's inexperienced himself. Maybe he doesn't quite know how to do that, so it's going to be very, very difficult to keep his hands clean. If he sides with Paul, which all of the evidence indicates that he really should do, he's going to be stymied at every point of his tenure in Palestine. And actually, as it turns out, He doesn't last long in Palestine. Uh, He's run out in two years. So Festus does not last long at all. And I think one of the reasons is he hated to be manipulated. He hated to be controlled. He wasn't a corrupt politician, at least not as corrupt as Felix was. And so he wasn't willing to go through the uh, incredibly crass manipulations that Felix went through. And so he doesn't last. This is a machine that chews up conservatives and spits them out. I think the parallel to modern Washington, D.C. is a remarkable one. In any case, in verse 9, we see a half-decent magistrate crumbling to the pressure. But Festus wanting to do the Jews a favor. There is that nasty little phrase keeps cropping up. Wanting to do the Jews a favor. This is what has led many a conservative to become what Ron Paul's aide calls gray sludge. Okay, You will never retain clean hands if you want to do a favor to the power brokers who are out there in order to uh, remain in office or in order to get on an influential committee or in order to be able to speak on a committee or something like that. In fact, if your goal is to stay in office, it's very unlikely you're going to make the kind of votes and the kind of decisions that will be God-pleasing. I could give you story after story of how potentially good congressmen have become gray sludge and utterly useless, and it's because they don't want to be on the outside looking in. They want to have some kind of influence, and it's a death trap. It became a death trap for Festus, who was another conservative chewed up and spit out within two years. Now, you can see in the second half of verse 9 that Festus wants to have his cake and eat it too. Uh, He knows he can't legally relinquish jurisdiction, So he asks Paul, are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and there be judged before me? In other words, he's not relinquishing jurisdiction before me concerning these things. Now, wait a shake. If he's not going to relinquish jurisdiction, why doesn't he just judge it right here? Why does he have to go to Jerusalem? Now, I think that he smelled a rat here. He knows that there is some hanky-panky that's going to go on uh, with regard to, to Paul but he probably just feels this is a small sacrifice to make in the interests of peace and in the safety of the nation as a whole. It's pragmatism and it stinks. And this is why I do not put my hope in electing uh, good officials into Washington. Now, will I vote for good officials and even help campaign for good officials? Absolutely, yes. Uh, Not a problem, but I have no illusions about whether good people are going to be able to change uh, Washington on much of anything at all. For example, Congress has very little control over the vast bureaucracy uh, known as the the federal system, Federal Reserve. Just as one example, Congress has voted to audit the Federal Reserve. 
The Senate so far has voted against it, but let's just say that the Senate does vote. Yeah, let's do an audit. I don't think anything's going to change whatsoever. They're not the ones who are uh, totally in control. It's a massive, massive machine there. And so what I think we ought to do is focus much more of our attention upon training and electing local magistrates who can protect us from some of the corruption uh, that is above. You see, apart from massive reformation, we're not going to see massive changes for good. Now, in any case, Paul is not timid about blasting Festus for his obvious hypocrisy. And if you're one of those people who thinks we always ought to be polite to politicians and never criticize politicians, you've not read very much of the politics in, in the book of Acts. Uh, Paul does not deal with things that way. These words must have stung Festus. They were tough words. They were not words designed to please or to appease. They were an outright rebuke to Festus. Now, I'll read verse 11 in a second, but let me just read verse 10 right now. So Paul said, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged. To the Jews, I have done no wrong, as you very well know. Now, there is no way that Festus should have been relinquishing jurisdiction to the Jews. His uh, presence in Jerusalem meant nothing if he was not willing to judge Paul right here and now in Caesarea. And so this is really a rebuke that Paul is bringing. He's saying, hey, my jurisdiction belongs here in Caesarea. You know that. Second part of the rebuke is that Festus knows that Paul is innocent. So sending him to Jerusalem is just playing political games. It's ridiculous. Paul knows if Festus gives in on this, concedes on this point here, when he gets to Jerusalem, he's just going to concede on more and more points. And after all, he already knows about a conspiracy against him to kill him on the way. He could easily get killed before he gets to Jerusalem. So he knows that this is a dangerous thing. So what he's doing is he's rebuking Festus for failing on his duty as an officer of the law to protect the rights of Roman citizens. Now, before I move on to the third part of Paul's rebuke in verse 11, let me just make some applications of that phrase. I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged. Now, I want you to notice the word ought there. I think it's an important word there. That stands in contradiction to those who align themselves with the sovereign individual movement and say, I'm a sovereign individual. Courts have no jurisdiction over me. And what Paul is saying here is that's absolutely not true. Now, people say, well, the situation was different. Here we have corporate America. We've got non-corporate, uh, you know, people who are citizens of the land. Well, you had the same kind of corporate issues. In fact, uh, states as corporations were back in Rome. The situation is identical, very parallel to what we have. And yet, Paul did uh, say, he acknowledged that Rome did have legitimate jurisdiction in this case. And so I think it's a flat-out contradiction of the sovereign individual theories. And I think it contradicts four other theories as well. Let me just quickly list them for you. The word ought stands in contradiction to the position of anarchism, which denies the legitimacy of any civil government. Third, um, well, this is the second additional one, uh, that word ought stands in contradiction to Anabaptists. Now, Anabaptists teach that uh, civil government is so corrupt, so evil, that Christians should never have anything whatsoever to do with it. And yet Paul here is indicating, no, I ought to be judged here in order to protect me from these Jews. Uh, this is something that is part of God's ordained uh, covenant structure. The word ought also stands in contradiction to those who say that we as Christians should only use church courts 
never to use civil courts. Now that one's going to take a little bit more explanation because uh, five years before he wrote 1 Corinthians chapter 6, which appears on the surface to contradict that. So I want you to turn with me there. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul really gets on the case of the, uh, the uh, Christians for go- taking brother uh, uh, to lawsuit in the, in the civil courts. Now, let's begin at verse 1, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 1. Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? He's really indicating that people in the church ought to be so familiar with biblical law that they can do a far better job than any court system out there in handling disputes amongst believers. He's saying a believer ought never to take another believer to a civil court. Verse 3, Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? If then you have judgments concerning things pertaining in this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one who will be able to judge between his brethren? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. So he's saying this is just not a right thing. I 100% acknowledge believers ought to have binding arbitration or mediation or even go to a church court, but they ought to do it within uh, the body of Christ. Uh, So I I don't question that uh, at all. Uh, But um, once a person has gone to a church court and that person, maybe there's another individual who just absolutely refuses to repent and to deal with this issue, becomes excommunicated, then you're dealing with an unbeliever and it's a totally different situation. Now there's a fourth uh, theory that I think is contrasted here. There have been Christians who have said that churches ought never to go to the courts, the civil courts, Uh, to protect their million-dollar properties from seizure by liberal denominations like the PCUSA. I totally disagree. And uh, historically, Presbyterians have disagreed on this. If there's anything that is 100% parallel between what happened back there and what is happening today with these liberal denominations, it's the fact that Paul, by appealing, is taking a liberal apostate denomination of Judaism to court Uh, over issues. I think there's no way that you can say that it's illegitimate. Paul is appealing to the jurisdiction of the Roman court. And there's a number of Presbyterians who've used this uh, this passage for uh, for justifying that. Um, Judges, even in pagan courts, have a place, have a role in God's plan. Romans 13 talks about that. And Paul wrote Romans about four and a half years earlier. Now take a look at verse 11. For if I am an offender or have committed anything deserving of death, I do not object to dying. But if there is nothing in these things of which these men accuse me, no one can deliver me to them. I appeal to Caesar. Now, Paul completely bypasses the authority of Festus, but not the way anarchists do. Okay? Uh, He has already declared his willingness to stand in a Roman court. He's saying that Festus should never relinquish jurisdiction. He does declare himself to be under Roman jurisdiction, uh, but Paul is appealing to a higher court within that Roman jurisdiction. And so those of you who are wrestling with uh, legal issues, uh, governmental issues, all of that kind of stuff, 
from a libertarian perspective, you need to really wrestle with verses like these. I think uh, they're key verses in understanding true authority. What, th- what they indicate here is Festus did have authority uh, to judge cases, and he did not have authority to abdicate jurisdiction. Since he's proving to be incompetent, Paul appeals and insists on his right to appeal. Now, the second thing I want you to notice that's relevant is that Paul is not opposed to the death penalty uh, being imposed by the civil magistrate. Now, that's a fascinating little phrase there. Fascinating. Uh, his statement, I think, is utterly, utterly incompatible with anarchism. He says, For if I am an offender or have committed anything deserving of death, I do not object to dying. So what Paul is doing is he is seeing a pagan magistrate as having very limited, yes, but very real authority in his life. And I think we need to take that into account uh, in, in our theology. I think, again, it's a needed correction for some who have bought into faulty political uh, ideas. Now, that does not mean that Paul has to take things just passively, whatever injustice is heaped upon him. No, he fights for justice within the Roman, uh, uh, Roman uh, uh, court system. If he had simply told the magistrates a few years before, I don't recognize your authority, he probably would have been dead long ago. Uh, just that would not uh, go over too well with the judges. Instead, he's learned how to operate within the Roman system and to fight for his rights very, very effectively. And uh, so we should never be passive in the civil realm in upcoming years. We may very well have some unjust accusations brought against us, and I have no plans on taking those passively. No way. I believe Christians are duty-bound to defend themselves from illegitimate punishments, just like Paul did here. Now, Paul's appeal to Nero is a calculated but a very risky move. And the reason I say it's risky is that Nero was no paragon of justice. I mean, he's already been engaged in some rather scandalous behaviors. Now, it is true. A lot of people point out this is still the golden era of uh, Nero's justice when he's under the influence of Burris and uh, the philosopher Pliny. For the next two years, he's going to be under their influence. And so you get much better justice from Nero during that period of time. But there's already been all kinds of scandalous things uh, that are happening. But Paul feels that he's going to have much greater chances of getting justice from Nero than if he goes to Jerusalem. It's almost certain that he's going to get killed if he goes to Jerusalem. So when we operate in the pagan uh, civil and um, court system, there are going to be times where you're going to have to calculate various risky options that are out there. Let's move on to point eight. Festus is obviously blindsided by this bold move, and he appears to be a little bit upset with the way that Paul has treated him. So verse 12 says, Then Festus, when he had conferred with the council, answered, You have appealed to Caesar? To Caesar you shall go. Now he confers with his council. He tries to figure, what do we do? And they say, well, we don't really have any choice. Uh, citizens in that day had the right to appeal to Caesar. It wasn't always so, but they had the right, and so their hands were kind of tied. And the way Festus says this, it appears that he's a little bit irritated. His pride gets hurt, but he can't do anything about it. But I think there's a hint here. And as he's talking with this council, that the council doesn't really have objections. I get the feeling that the council thinks that Paul really has hung himself by appealing uh, to Nero. 
Uh, let me just give you some evidence as to why it really was a risky thing to go there. Claudius, previous emperor, remember he had uh, kicked all Jews out of Rome. He was not entirely pleased with Jews. Paul is a Jew, so that's one strike against him. And then six years uh, previous, uh, Nero was proving to be rather impatient. Uh, and so uh, he talks his mom into poisoning Claudius so that he can come to the throne. Five years before this chapter, he poisons his half-brother, who is a rival, and then within the last year, he kills his own mother. Uh, Agrippina the Younger, his mother, uh, criticized his um, mistress that he had, so he tries to kill her unsuccessfully one time, another time, and he finally manages to, to do, her, uh, do her in. And so you can see that uh, Nero's not kind of, uh, you know, he's willing to do anything for his own purposes. And these guys probably figure, hey, you want to go to Nero? Go for it. Um, you know, that's another way of getting rid of, um, uh, getting rid of Paul. But I should point out, it proved to be a good move on Paul's part. Because uh, if traditionalists are correct, he gets off the hook and uh, he has some years of ministry he gets caught again later on, and during the bad period of Nero's reign, he gets uh, beheaded in about 65 or 66 A.D., and um, Peter, about the same time, gets uh, crucified. So what are we to make of all of this? That's the, that's the background. What are we to make of all of this? Um, you know, should I even be preaching on politics? Shouldn't I just skip over this chapter and preach on the gospel alone? Well... I believe we're supposed to preach on every section of Scripture and we're not supposed to artificially inject into the passage things that aren't there. The passage doesn't talk about the gospel, doesn't talk about Jesus. But, and this is a very big but, it highlights one of the reasons why Paul's gospel and Paul's Jesus was far more offensive to the pagans than the modern gospel and the modern Jesus of the modern church. You see, Modern church, when they preach the gospel, I doubt it's ever going to get them in trouble. But the gospel of Paul and the Jesus of Paul was constantly getting Paul into trouble. And I think we need to investigate. Why was that the case? Why was that the case? Well, Paul's gospel is not only about justification by faith alone. As wonderful as that doctrine is, as precious, as central as the doctrine of justification by faith alone is, it's not all there is to the good news. The good news is that everything that was lost by the first Adam because of his sin has been regained by the second Adam because of his grace. And it starts with election and eternity past. It includes redemption of the cross, uh, regeneration, justification, sanctification, glorification. It includes his purchase of the new heavens and the new earth. In other words, his grace goes and reaches quote, far as the curse is found, unquote. Well, that means that the good news is even good news for politics and eventually it's going to take over politics, amen? amen? It is a good news. This means that no square inch of planet Earth can escape from the claims of Christ and Christ's grace and His Word speaking to it. After all, all authority has been given to Him in heaven and on earth. Well, you start preaching that kind of a good news, you're going to get in trouble with magistrates pretty quickly. Now, there is a balance here. Even though magistrates may rebel against God's purposes for them, they still are useful tools 
uh, in God's plan, and we still must submit to those magistrates. On the other hand, it is the duty of believers to press God's grace and His righteousness and Christ's crown rights into even the dark sphere of Washington, D.C. And this is why I appreciate capital ministries so much. They're imitating Paul in preaching the gospel to kings. Now, the commission that was given to Paul in Acts 9 is uh, the commission that um, the capital ministries holds. It says this, to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. There's three mission fields. Now, we already have people who are taking missions to uh, the Gentiles, and we've got people who are taking missions uh, to the children of Israel, but almost nobody has been preaching the gospel to the mission field that the capital ministries is to, to magistrates, people in every state capital and eventually uh, to uh, Washington, D.C. itself. But they're trying to reach to city halls and, and all over the place. That's what Jesus said, to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. So pray for capital ministries. They're seeking to disciple magistrates in a very, very neglected mission field. And if they're successful, America could be turned upside down just like Nineveh was through the preaching of Jonah. Now, it may seem like a hopeless cause to turn Washington around, but you know what? Isaiah 9 says it's going to happen not because of our zeal, but it's going to happen because of God's zeal. Isaiah 9 talks about the Christ child being born and then ascending to heaven, the government being upon his shoulders, and it says of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end upon the throne of David to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. It will. Don't ever say that justice and judgment in Washington is hopeless. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Now, that doesn't mean we can't be cynical about the DCs of this world. I'm plenty cynical about uh, what goes on in them. In fact, that passage assumes gray sludge is going to be in these capitals until they're redeemed, right? Psalm 110 commands Jesus Christ, "...rule in the midst of your enemies." It assumes enemies. The, the presence of enemies in Washington, D.C. should never make us deny that Jesus is ruling in the midst of His enemies. But it also means that Christians must not abandon any area over which Jesus Christ is ruling. We need to penetrate into every area of life. And I think D.C. has become so corrupt because Christians have bailed out. They've pulled out. Uh, of the political realm. And if we are to allow the good news to have its full sway in our lives, that means we're going to be passionate to extend Christ's rule even into the midst of His enemies, the enemies in D.C. So let's pray and work for change rather than getting discouraged over the lack of change. But let's realize it will only happen as the gospel penetrates the lives of politicians on every level. It's not politics that will change politicians. It is the gospel and the gospel alone that can do so. Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word and that even the things that we look at and we read and we think, wow, how discouraging. We're not discouraging to Paul because he realized that of the increase, the gradual increase of Christ's kingdom and of peace, there will be no end. 
We want to be a part of that increase. We want to be a part of the advancement of the Great Commission. We want to be a part of supporting those and praying for those and putting a hedge around those who are penetrating into some of these dark areas. Father, we do pray this morning for Christians who have gone to, to uh, uh, Des Moines and to uh, Lincoln and D.C. and other state capitals and city councils and uh, who find themselves so discouraged as they feel like they are in a pit of demons. We pray that you would protect them, put a hedge round about them, and uh, cause them not to succumb, not to compromise, uh, and not to play the games that the humanists play, but to be faithful ambassadors of King Jesus in that realm. We long to see our nation on every level uh, bowing before King Jesus and experiencing the transforming grace that He has brought. And so I want to give a special prayer for Capital Ministries that you would raise up the finances for uh, our, uh, our guy, um, uh, uh, Gauthier, Chaplain Gauthier in, in Lincoln, that all of the finances needed for him to uh, be able to prosper in what he is doing uh, would come very, very quickly. We pray that you would raise up other key chaplains across this nation and that you would bring people who are willing to be as Paul uh, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and its transforming uh, grace into uh, these dark areas, this uh, central and very important mission field. And Father, we'll be sure to give you the glory and the praise and the honor through all that is accomplished. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.